Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a podcast produced by Mayo Clinic. This week, we're excited to share with you a talk from the Selected Topics in Internal Medicine Conference held in Kauai, Hawaii. Today's talk is Updates in Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Michael Cullen. Dr. Cullen is an Assistant Professor of Cardiology at Mayo Clinic. We have four learning objectives this morning. The first is to identify indications for anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation. The second is to select appropriate anticoagulant therapy for patients with atrial fibrillation. The third is to manage incidental and postoperative atrial fibrillation. And the fourth is to discuss the use of anticoagulation after atrial fibrillation ablation. We're going to cover those learning objectives with this outline. We're going to begin by discussing stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. We're going to talk about assessing a patient's risk of thromboembolism, assessing their risk of bleeding, and then using that risk assessment to select appropriate therapy. We're then going to move on to some clinical scenarios. We'll talk about incidental atrial fibrillation, postoperative atrial fibrillation, and post-ablation atrial fibrillation. Let's start with stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Here's the first case. This is a 60-year-old female. She presents with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. She's had two episodes in the last six months, both requiring cardioversion. She's currently in sinus rhythm. She has no symptoms. She has hypertension well-controlled, treated with lisinopril. Her blood pressure in your office is 110 over 80. She has hyperlipidemia, treated with atorvastatin. Her LDL is 95. She has no diabetes. She's never smoked. She has no known vascular disease. She has no history of bleeding. She drinks alcohol very rarely. Her creatinine is normal. Her left ventricular ejection fraction is normal. So in this patient, this 60-year-old female with hypertension, and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, how do you manage her antithrombotic therapy? No additional therapy, she's not on anything right now. Do you add aspirin? Do you add warfarin? Do you place her on aspirin and Plavix? Or do you place her on a novel anticoagulant? 50% want to place her on aspirin, and then the next uh, highest choice is a novel anticoagulant at 27%. So let's talk about this. Most of you are probably used to using the CHADS-2 scoring system for assessing a patient's risk for stroke in atrial fibrillation. Now, the CHADS-2 scoring system looks at a number of different risk factors for stroke. Congestive heart failure, hypertension, age over 75 years, diabetes, and then prior stroke TIA, or thromboembolic event, which is worth two points. And then you add up the patient's points, and you get a CHADS-2 score. And we know from a number of studies over the years that a higher, the higher a patient's CHADS-2 score, the higher their risk of having a stroke. But you'll notice here at the lower end of the spectrum, there's not a lot of discriminatory, discriminatory ability. The risk of stroke increases relatively rapidly. The recommendations based on the CHADS-2 score from old versions of the cardiology guidelines were that if a patient had a CHADS-2 score of zero, you could treat them with either with aspirin. If a patient had a CHADS-2 score of 1, you could use aspirin or warfarin. 
And if a patient had a CHADS 2 score of two or greater, you should use warfarin to a goal line of two to three. But anyone who used the CHADS 2 score in their practice knew that there were a lot of patients falling into this intermediate risk category. Some studies would suggest 30 to 50% of those patients. And you were really stuck wondering what to do without some clear direction. So that lack of discriminatory ability at the lower end of the risk spectrum and identification of novel risk factors led to the development of the CHADS-2 VASC scoring system. Now the CHADS-2 VASC scoring system has, incorporates a larger number of risk factors. Congestive heart failure is still part of the risk scoring system. It's still worth a point. Hypertension, even if it is well controlled, treated hypertension is still worth a point. Age over 75 years and recognition that age is perhaps one of the biggest risk factors is worth two points. Diabetes is worth, still worth a point. Prior stroke, TIA, or thromboembolic event is worth two points. Vascular disease, prior myocardial infarction, peripheral arterial disease, or even aortic plaque is worth a point. Age 65 to 74 years is worth one point. And female gender is actually worth one point because it's been shown that females are actually at higher risk of stroke and atrial fibrillation than males. And as you would expect with the CHADS2 VAST score, the higher the score, the higher the risk. But you'll notice there's a little bit more discriminatory ability here at the lower end of the risk spectrum. This is just sort of a statistical blip. I wouldn't get too hung up on this. There weren't a lot of patients in the study that had a CHADS2 VAS score of eight. Generally, you can appreciate increasing stroke risk with increasing CHADS2 VAS score. Recommendations now are that because patients with a CHADS2 VAS score of zero are at such low risk, they don't need any antithrombotic therapy. No aspirin, no warfarin. There's still this gray area with patients with a CHADS2 VAS score of one. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And then patients that have a CHADS2 VAS score of 2, guidelines will recommend oral anticoagulation. So what are we supposed to do with this group, this CHADS2 VAS score of 1? Well, the guidelines will say that with non-valvular atrial fibrillation and a CHADS2 VAS score of 1, no antithrombotic therapy or treatment with oral anticoagulant or aspirin may be considered. Okay, thanks. That's helpful. Okay, so, so what should we do? Well, not all stroke risk factors are created equally, and I think it really depends on what that one point comes from. So if that one point is for female gender alone, then I think it is very reasonable to omit therapy. Okay, if, if their one point is from female gender alone, they probably don't need anything. If that one point is from vascular disease, oftentimes the patient is on aspirin anyway. You could certainly consider continuing the aspirin or placing them on an anticoagulant. If their one point is for age, 65 to 74, I would recommend anticoagulation. If their one point is for heart failure, I would certainly recommend anticoagulation. If their one point is for diabetes or hypertension, because those are stronger risk factors for stroke, the, uh, I would recommend anticoagulation. Now, if they are intolerant of anticoagulation, you could consider backing off to aspirin. But what to do with the CHADS2 VAS score of one really depends on what that one point comes from. And as you would expect, when we started, when we switched to using the CHADS2 VAS scoring system, 
we're seeing some changes in how we approach anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation. This is data from the University of Virginia. They looked at how often anticoagulation was recommended in both women and men using the CHADS-2 and the CHADS-2 VAST scoring system. And as you would expect, anticoagulation is recommended now in more patients, particularly in women, and fewer patients are falling into that optional category, again, particularly in women. What about bleeding risk? Okay, anytime you're placing a patient on an anticoagulant, you need to consider what their, what's going to be the risk of bleeding. Well, the guidelines will now say that in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, we should be assessing their bleeding with the HasBled score. There's a number of other bleeding risk scores out there. HasBled score seems to be the most widely adopted. Now, the HasBled score looks at the number of different risk factors for bleeding. Uncontrolled hypertension is one of them. So this is different than hypertension in the CHADS2-VAS score. In the CHADS2-VAS scoring system, it's any hypertension, treated or not, controlled or not. In the HasBled score, it is uncontrolled hypertension defined as a systolic blood pressure over 160. Abnormal renal function and liver function are both risk factors. Renal function is defined as a dialysis patient or creatinine over 2.26. Abnormal liver function is defined as clinical cirrhosis or uh, liver chemistries greater than two to three-fold the upper limit of normal. Prior stroke or TIA is worth a point. A bleeding history or predisposition is worth a point. So if a patient's been hospitalized for a GI bleed, that counts. If a patient has had bleeding requiring transfusion, that counts. Patients who have labile INRs defined as less than 60% of time in the therapeutic range counts as a point. Elderly patients defined as over 65 years of age counts as a point, and patients on medications like aspirin, NSAIDs, clopidogrel, or patients that use heavy alcohol defined as greater than eight drinks per week, both of those could be a point. So you can get a HasBled score of up to nine, and as you would expect, data would show that as the HasBled score increases, the bleeding risk increases. And the guidelines really draw the line at three. And they say that if you have a HasBled score of three or greater, that's when you should at least give a little bit of pause to anticoagulating the patient long-term. Now, that doesn't mean you don't anticoagulate the patient, but maybe that's when you have a discussion with your cardiology colleagues about left atrial appendage occlusion devices or something like that. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. My colleague, Sunil Mancat, is going to be discussing that in more detail on Wednesday. But that HasBled score of over three should at least prompt a discussion about the suitability of long-term anticoagulation. What about aspirin and clopidogrel? Now, a number of you selected aspirin as the treatment of choice in the case that we discussed. Aspirin for stroke prevention has, aspirin has traditionally been used for stroke prevention in lower-risk patients. But when we look at the data, it's a little bit muddled. Okay? This is a meta-analysis of aspirin trials in atrial fibrillation published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2007. Okay, you'll notice here at the bottom, when you look at all of these trials together, there was a 22% relative risk reduction for stroke with aspirin versus placebo. However, all of these results were driven by a single trial. This is the SPAF-1 trial published way back in 1991. All of these other trials, the confidence interval crosses one. 
And when you look at the data together, there was really no all-cause mortality benefit, and there is a higher bleeding risk of putting these patients on aspirin. Furthermore, aspirin had never really been studied in lower-risk patients where we had been traditionally using it in atrial fibrillation. So aspirin has really fallen out of favor as monotherapy for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Now, when we add clopidogrel to the mix, we know that clopidogrel and aspirin together are superior than aspirin alone for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation, but that that combination remains inferior to warfarin. So aspirin and clopidogrel really don't have a role for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Patients should simply be anticoagulated with warfarin instead. The bottom line is that there is a limited role for aspirin or aspirin and clopidogrel for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Selected cases possibly, but very selected cases. Let's go back to our patient. This is our 60-year-old female with hypertension and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. If we think about this patient, she's a female and she has hypertension. She has a CHADS2 VAS score of 2. Okay? She's a female and she has hypertension. Even though it's well-controlled, it still counts. She has a CHADS2 VAS score of 2. She needs either warfarin or she needs a novel anticoagulant. Okay, so your next question is, well, how do we select the appropriate anticoagulant therapy? It used to be easy, right? Ten years ago, if patient needed anticoagulation, they got warfarin. Over the last several years, we've had a number of different options become available, and you're often sitting there left scratching your head trying to figure out what to do. So how do we decide? Well, let's take a step back a little bit, and let's talk about warfarin. We know warfarin works, okay? Now, warfarin, from a historical perspective, for anyone here from Wisconsin, Madison, okay, I'm a Badger alum myself, so um, warfarin was discovered at the University of Wisconsin and named after the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. And anyone that's been to Madison on the west side of campus, there's this big, huge building for the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, which was actually um, founded in the 1920s after they discovered vitamin D, and it's sort of the nonprofit technology transfer wing of the University of Wisconsin. And story has it that in the 1930s or 40s, there was a farmer that showed up at the Department of Agriculture in Madison with a dead cow, some rotten hay, and a milk bottle full of blood that wouldn't coagulate. And he wanted to know what killed his cow and why the cow's blood wouldn't coagulate. And after a number of years, uh, the researchers at University of Wisconsin isolated the compound that later became known as warfarin, and they named it after the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. And it was first marketed as rat poison, right? Your patients will tell you that. Oh, I got me on that rat poison, doc. Okay, but then over the years, it developed therapeutic uses in humans. And actually, President Eisenhower, when he had his myocardial infarction in office in the 1950s, was one of the first people to use warfarin for therapeutic uses. And over the years, we began using it for atrial fibrillation, and Bucky Badger is quite proud to say that warfarin has caused, will um, lead to about a two-thirds relative risk reduction for stroke versus placebo in patients with atrial fibrillation. So warfarin is quite effective. But anyone who's used warfarin knows that there's a number of problems with it, okay? There's lots of interactions with medications, food, etc. Takes a long time to become therapeutic, takes a long time to stop being therapeutic after you stop taking it, has a very narrow therapeutic range which necessitates the need for monitoring. And so there's really been a desire to overcome some of these limitations of warfarin. 
and that's led to the development of a number of novel anticoagulants. What are these novel anticoagulants? Well, any of you, this was first day of medical school for me. This was the coagulation cascade, and you had to memorize all of these factors going from X to Y, and you know, you ultimately you get thrombin and fibrin. What you need to remember about these novel anticoagulants is that we have three factor 10A inhibitors, rivaroxabam, apixabam, and adoxabam available, and then we have one direct thrombin inhibitor, dabigatran available. So the mechanism is that these factor 10A inhibitors will in inhibit hemostasis by blocking factor 10A, and then dabigatran inhibits hemostasis by blocking thrombin. Next question is, okay, we've got these new medications available that are supposed to overcome some of the limitations of warfarin. Are they effective? Well, when we look at the four major clinical trials, and this data was published in The Lancet in 2014, we have the RELY trial uh, um, of dabigatran, the ROCKET-AF trial of rivaroxabam, the Aristotle trial of apixabam, and the ENGAGE-AF-TIMI trial of adoxabam. And when you look at the combined endpoint of the novel anticoagulant versus warfarin, you see a significant 19% reduction in stroke or systemic embolic events with the novel anticoagulant versus warfarin. So the answer is yes, they do work. Next question is, are they safe? Do they increase the risk of bleeding? You look at data from that same study that looked at rates of major bleeding in the four main clinical trials, we'll see that yes, there was some variability in the trials, but overall, there was a 14%, just slightly non-significant, that confidence interval just barely touches one, so not statistically significant, but definitely a trend toward a reduction in major bleeding with the novel anticoagulants versus warfarin. So they seem to work, and they seem to be safe. What are some other pros and cons? Anytime you're deciding to use these, these medications, there's a balance of the pros and cons. Well, on the pro side for the novel anticoagulants, they have much more predictable pharmacology, which obviates the need for the close monitoring that we need with warfarin. There's actually a decreased risk of intracranial hemorrhage that we've seen in the trials, and they have much fewer interactions, so patients don't have to worry about eating all of that spinach that they like to eat. They have rapid onset and offset. Patients can take one to two doses of these medications and be therapeutic quite quickly. On the flip side, okay, they do require dose adjustment for renal function, age, weight, in some circumstances, so you can't just give the same dose to everyone. Can't use them in patients with mechanical heart valves. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Can't use them in patients with severe renal failure or dialysis. Data just isn't there. There is a signal that some of them, particularly dabigatran, may actually increase the risk of GI bleeding. They do require compliance, which gets back to this point. If a patient misses just one or two doses, they could become subtherapeutic very quickly, unlike warfarin, where they oftentimes have some time to catch up. We don't yet have reversal agents available, although those will be coming. I, haven't, I, have, I suspect in the next few years, and they can be quite expensive, and quite frankly, this is probably one of the biggest barriers in my patient population to obtaining some of these medications. Let's drill down a little bit into some of the pros and cons of these specific agents. If we think about dabigatran, which is Pridaxa, it had in its clinical trial the highest stroke reduction rates, but then the FDA approved this 70 milligram twice a day dose uh, for patients with renal dysfunction that was never really tested in clinical trials, and there is some signal that they may not be as absorbed as well in patients on PPIs. 
Rivaloxaban, which is Zeralto, has the advantage of once daily dosing, but the bleeding rates are a little bit higher. The dose needs to be adjusted for renal function, and patients need to remember to take it after food. Apixaban, which is Eliquis, had the lowest bleeding rates in the clinical trials. The dose does need to be adjusted for age, weight, and renal function. And Adoxaban, which is Cervesa, has the advantage of once daily dosing. Again, dose needs to be adjusted for use of renal function and actually the P-glycoprotein inhibitors, so medications that fall into this category are things like amiodarone or verapamil. And there's actually a signal that adoxabam is less effective in patients with good renal function because their kidneys just chew up the medication so rapidly that it doesn't really actually um, have as much therapeutic utility. The bottom line is that you should become comfortable in your practice using one or two of these agents. Talk to your partners, see what your local pharmacy plans carry, um, see what's available in your community. In, personally, in my practice, I use a Pixabam as sort of my go-to. If patients really say they're going to have a tough time with that BID dosing, I'll go to Rivaroxabam. I don't, use, I don't tend to use Edoxabam or Dabigatran as much. That's not saying you couldn't use one, one of those medications. I would become comfortable with using one or two of them. So ultimately, how do we select patients for these medications? Okay, this gets back to the question that we asked earlier. So when to use novel anticoagulants? Patients who are warfarin naive are good candidates for novel anticoagulants because then they don't have to go through the rigmarole of establishing a monitoring program. Patients who have a history of labile INRs are good candidates. Patients with preserved renal function, generally good candidates. Patients who you know are going to take their medications on a regular basis are good candidates. Patients where cost is less of an issue. And sometimes patients just prefer, they don't want to be on that rat poison. They prefer one of the novel anticoagulants. When should you not use them? You should not use them in patients on hemodialysis. You should not use, there is a potential for drug interactions, verapamil and amiodarone come to mind, so you need to check the interactions with the specific novel anticoagulant you might be using. Patients who have a tough time affording medications are going to be, may have a difficult time affording some of these. I tell them warfarin is cheap and that's one of the biggest advantages. Patients with mechanical heart valves and patients with valvular atrial fibrillation should not use a novel anticoagulant. Okay, so everything that we have discussed thus far deals with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. So you hear all of these trials, non-valvular, valvular. Okay, what does that darn cardiologist mean about non-valvular versus valvular atrial fibrillation? So what is valvular atrial fibrillation? Valvular atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation in the setting of rheumatic mitral stenosis, a prior mitral valve repair, a prosthetic mitral valve, whether it's a biological or mechanical valve, or a mechanical aortic valve. If any of these situations apply, valvular AFib equals warfarin. You're done. No CHADS2 VAST score, no CHADS2 score, no novel anticoagulant. Valvular AFib equals warfarin. I'm going to make one more point about atrial fibrillation in the setting of structural heart disease. Okay? This is not quite valvular atrial fibrillation, but it's still an important point. HCM equals OAC. What does that mean? If a patient has atrial fibrillation and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they need anticoagulation. If a patient has atrial fibrillation and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they need anticoagulation. Doesn't matter what their CHADS2 score is, doesn't matter what their CHADS2 VAS score is. Okay? You can use a novel anticoagulant in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The data is less robust. Okay? You're not obligated to warfarin like you are with valvular AFib. Something to keep in mind. So we've covered a lot of material. Let's summarize what we know about which patients should receive anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation. If you have rheumatic mitral stenosis, 
prior mitral valve surgery or a mechanical aortic valve, that's valvular atrial fibrillation, you get warfarin. No questions asked. HCM equals OAC. Remember that. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy plus atrial fibrillation equals oral anticoagulation. After that, you calculate your CHADS2 VAS score. And if you have CHADS2 VAS score is zero, you're done. Okay, if your CHADS2 VAS score is one, you can go in any different direction. It really depends on what that one risk factor comes from. If your CHADS2 VAS score is two, then you get warfarin or a novel anticoagulant for the reasons that we discussed. You're also going to calculate your has blood score, and if your has blood score is three or greater, that's when you want to consider alternatives to anticoagulation, or at least have that discussion. Okay, so we've covered a lot of material. We've talked a lot about stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. We're going to move on to some specific clinical scenarios to help you apply this paradigm to your patients. This is our second case. This is an 82-year-old male who presents for a general exam. He's asymptomatic, feeling well. He has treated hypertension and hyperlipidemia. He has no diabetes or bleeding history. He has an irregular rhythm on exam. So you get an ECG and predictably, boom, he has atrial fibrillation. You get a whole tube monitor. He's in atrial fibrillation for the 24 hours that he wore the monitor. His mean heart rate is 80 beats per minute. You get an echo. His ejection fraction is 60%. He has moderate left atrial enlargement. Normal TSH, CBC, LFTs, and renal function. So we have an 82-year-old asymptomatic male with atrial fibrillation. What is your next step? No further therapy, rate control and anticoagulation, amiodarone and anticoagulation, electrical cardioversion, or refer for an ablation. So 78% said rate control and anticoagulation. Very good. A few patients down here wanted to cardiovert him. So incidental atrial fibrillation, what, this is one cardiologist's opinion. How should we manage this? First thing to do is exclude reversible causes, okay? Check their thyroid, check their electrolytes, make sure there's no concurrent illnesses like in pulmonary infection or urinary tract infection that could set things off. But oftentimes in asymptomatic patients, you're not going to pick up any of those things. I think it's important to check the patient's left ventricular function and check their rate control. If they're not obviously tachycardic when they present to you, I think a 24-hour whole monitor is quite useful to see what their rate does over the course of a normal day. You're going to calculate their CHADS2 VAS score, and you're going to calculate their has blood score like we discussed. And then you should ask three questions. First of all, do you have any symptoms? And those aren't necessarily palpitations. Could be some dyspnea, could be some lightheadedness, could be fatigue. Secondly, is your EF low? And if it is low, can I explain it with another reason? If you can't explain it with another reason, you have to think about a tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy. And the third question, is their rate difficult to control? Now, the exact rate control goals in atrial fibrillation are difficult to determine, and the trial data has been really muddled. I tend to use a mean heart rate of at least less than 85 per 90. Sometimes in younger patients, you can get away with a little bit more lenient rate control if they're more active. But I think in someone like this, I would want to see that mean heart rate on his 24-hour whole-through monitor, probably less than 85 to 90 beats per minute. If the answer to any of these questions is yes, that's when you involve your cardiologist and you need to think about a rhythm control strategy, whether it's with antiarrhythmics or a cardioversion or something like that. If the answer is no to these questions, then rate control is a perfectly reasonable option. Again, you 
you're going to go back to your CHADS2 VAST score and your HasBlood score, and you're going to make the decision about long-term anticoagulation based on the balance of their stroke and bleeding risk. So in this gentleman, this 82-year-old male with asymptomatic atrial fibrillation, as many of you identified, rate control and anticoagulation is probably the best approach. And frankly, in elderly patients with asymptomatic atrial fibrillation and minimal symptoms, this is typically the approach that I will use. Rate control, anticoagulate, you're done. Case number three, 78-year-old male. Okay, he has type 2 diabetes, he has COPD. He's four days after a AAA repair. He has atrial fibrillation. He's gone into atrial fibrillation for 24 hours. So the surgeon calls you frantically, says, what are we supposed to do? His rate has been going at about 115 beats per minute. He has minimal symptoms. He's still recovering from his operation. You have a recent echo that showed an ejection fraction of 55%. He's got normal electrolytes and a normal TSH. So the next question. 78-year-old male, post-operative atrial fibrillation after a AAA repair. What is your next step? No further therapy, rate control plus anticoagulation, amiodarone and anticoagulation, cardioversion, or would you refer for an ablation? Okay, so interesting uh, spread here. 39% said electrical cardioversion. The next most popular was 24% who said rate control plus anticoagulation. Let's talk about this. What do we know about post-operative atrial fibrillation? Well, we know that it's quite common. Some study, after cardiac surgery, it can happen up to 60% of the time. Some studies would suggest that it is, it is as frequent as 40% after non-cardiac surgery. That seems a little bit high to me. I suspect other data uh, would suggest that the incidence around 4 to 12% is more accurate. We know that there are a number of risk factors for atrial fibrillation after non-cardiac surgery. The bigger the operation, the bigger the risk. So intrathoracic and vascular operations have a higher risk. The sicker the patient, the bigger the risk. Patients with valvular heart disease have a bigger risk. Patients with prior arrhythmias have a bigger risk. And then patients with lung disease, diabetes, heart failure, all of these other comorbidities will increase the risk as well. What do we actually do about it when it happens? Well, again, just like we did for incidental atrial fibrillation, you want to exclude reversible causes. And sometimes surgery in and of itself is a reversible cause. Okay? But you have to ask, are there other reversible causes? What do their electrolytes look like? Do they have a concurrent infection? Do they have any uh, postoperative bleeding going on? Is their thyroid abnormal? Check their rate control, and oftentimes you'll get a sense of this because the patients are monitored in the hospital. And check their LV function. Oftentimes these patients have had a preoperative echo. If they haven't had a recent echo, get another echo. That echo will also be very helpful at looking for things like structural heart disease that may have been undetected. If the atrial fibrillation persists for more than 24 to 48 hours, then they should probably be anticoagulated based on their stroke and bleeding risk. And this has to be done in concert with the surgeons. You want to know what is the patient's risk of bleeding from the operation that they just had. Assuming that risk of bleeding has subsided and they have risk factors for stroke, they should be anticoagulated at least for the short term. And again, you're going to ask yourself these questions. Do they have symptoms and is their rate difficult to control? If they have symptoms or their rate is difficult to control or both, then you want to think about a rhythm control strategy. If the answer is no, then rate control is perfectly acceptable. And then after 
one to three months, you can reassess the patient for recurrent atrial fibrillation. Oftentimes, after surgery or after atrial fibrillation due to other reversible causes, they will convert back to sinus rhythm on their own. If they come to your office and they're not still obviously in atrial fibrillation and they're not having any symptoms of atrial fibrillation, I think ambulatory monitoring here, again with a Holter monitor, to assess for subclinical atrial fibrillation can be very helpful. And if they have, don't have any evidence of recurrence, you could consider stopping anticoagulation, assuming that they were placed on it in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean you have to stop anticoagulation. It really comes down to the individual patient. If you are concerned that the risk of recurrent atrial fibrillation is high, that the risk of stroke is high, and that the bleeding risk is relatively low, it may make sense to continue anticoagulation for longer. It really has to be addressed on a case-by-case -case basis, but I think in general, reassessing in that one to three month time frame, assuming they're back in sinus rhythm, is a reasonable option. If you think about this patient, this 78-year-old gentleman with postoperative atrial fibrillation, I would be concerned in this situation about his elevated rate, and I think I would agree with you that those who chose electrical cardioversion, this would be a very reasonable approach. Okay. He has COPD, so you might be concerned about using a beta blocker. Sometimes calcium channel blockers aren't working, don't work very well in these elderly patients. I think if you are concerned about your ability to control his rate and your ability to get him out of the hospital, a cardioversion is often a very good way to get him into sinus rhythm. Now that comes with it, the need for anticoagulation for at least a month afterwards. Assuming you cardiovert him successfully, you're going to reassess him in a month, you're going to one to two months, and you're going to see, have you had any more atrial fibrillation? Could we potentially revisit your need for anticoagulation moving forward, just like we discussed? In this situation, though, I think cardioversion is very reasonable. This is our last case, case number four. This is back to our 60-year-old female with hypertension where we started. Okay, she's now had symptomatic paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. She's been on multiple antiarrhythmic medications. She's still having spells of atrial fibrillation. She's been anticoagulated with rivaroxaban, which is Xeralto, 20 milligrams a day. And she's requesting a referral for an atrial fibrillation ablation. And she asks you, what are your recommendations regarding post-ablation anticoagulation? Okay, do you tell her she can discontinue all antithrombotic therapy if the procedure is a success? Do you tell her she will require aspirin for the first two months after the procedure? Do you tell her she will need to discontinue rivaroxaban five days before the procedure? Do you tell her she should hold rivaroxaban the day of the procedure, resume it within 24 hours after the procedure, and continue it indefinitely regardless of procedural success? Or do you tell her she can discontinue rivaroxaban one month afterwards if the procedure is a success, but must resume anticoagulation if atrial fibrillation recurs? This is a little bit of an advanced question, but I think the group is up to the challenge. So 71% said that she can discontinue rivaroxaban one month afterwards if the procedure is a success, but must resume anticoagulation if atrial fibrillation recurs. 21% said choice D was the most appropriate. Let's talk about this. Anticoagulation and ablation. Now, it's a complex issue, and most of this is handled by electrophysiologists, but as internists and as family practitioners, you may get these questions 
about from your patients. And I think it's important to understand not the technical aspects of when patients should or shouldn't have an ablation, but how to address their questions about anticoagulation. So if we think about someone going for an atrial fibrillation ablation, greater than three weeks before the ablation, they're going to be on their standard anticoagulant regimen based on their CHADS2 VAS score, their HASBLOOD score, as we've discussed. In this situation, the patient would stay on her Zeralto. Within that three-week period before an ablation, the guidelines would suggest that most patients should be anticoagulated regardless of their baseline risk to make sure that they don't have any intracardiac thrombus at the time of the procedure. And patients will remain on anticoagulation up till about 24 hours before the procedure, and then during the procedure, these patients are all gonna be placed on therapeutic levels of unfractionated heparin. So if patients can't tolerate high doses of unfractionated heparin, they probably shouldn't be undergoing an ablation in the first place. Within the first two months after an ablation, all patients are going to be anticoagulated with either warfarin or a novel anticoagulant, regardless of their baseline risk, because the electrophysiologist has just burned holes, not, hopefully not holes, but burned lines in their, thankfully there's no electrophysiologist in the audience, hopefully, um, has just burned lines in the left atrium and wants to make sure blood clots don't form on the areas where they just ablated. So all of the patients within the first two months after an ablation are going to need anticoagulation. And then greater than two months after an ablation, the decision to anticoagulate the patient goes back to their baseline stroke and bleeding risk, regardless of whether or not the procedure was a success. So again, if their CHADS2 VAS score is zero, you're done. If their CHADS2 VAS score is one, it gets back to our discussion with the patient like we talked about earlier. And if their CHADS2 VAS score is two or greater, the guidelines would suggest that they should continue anticoagulation. So in this particular patient, she should get back on her Zeralto. Now she's going to be placed on it immediately after the procedure. She needs to stay on it. Why is that? Because if atrial fibrillation recurs after an ablation and the recurrence rates are not trivial, it is more likely to be silent and subclinical. And so therefore, patients are less likely to present with symptoms of atrial fibrillation, less likely to recognize it. So you can't rely on, oh, if your symptoms recur, we'll just put you back on your Zeralto. No, that's not the case. The guidelines would suggest that this patient needs to stay on her anticoagulation. The bottom line is that the desire to discontinue anticoagulation is not an indication for an AFib ablation. Okay, the desire to discontinue anticoagulation is not an indication for an AFib ablation. Atrial fibrillation ablation should be performed for symptomatic relief, not for the desire to get off of anticoagulation. Right, so in this particular situation, the correct answer was actually choice D. She should hold her rivaroxaban the day of the procedure. She's going to be placed on heparin. She'll resume it within 24 hours afterwards and then continue it indefinitely due to her gender and her hypertension. Let's summarize. We've covered a lot of material. We started by talking about stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. We talked about using the CHADS2 VASC score to assess a patient's risk for thromboembolism, using the HASBLED score to assess their risk of bleeding, and then using those scores to select the appropriate therapy, whether it's warfarin or a novel anticoagulant. And then we talked about some clinical scenarios, incidental atrial fibrillation, postoperative atrial fibrillation, and atrial fibrillation after an ablation. I'd like to leave you with four take-home points that you can take back to your practices. The first is, you should now be using the CHADS2 VAS score for thromboembolic risk stratification and atrial fibrillation. You should not be using the CHADS2 score anymore. You should be using the CHADS2 
VASC score. Okay. Most patients with a CHADS2 VASC score of one or greater should receive warfarin or an anticoagulant. Aspirin should not be used except in specific situations as monotherapy for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation anymore. Postoperative atrial fibrillation over 24 to 48 hours requires anticoagulation based on the patient's long-term risk of stroke and bleeding at least for a period of time. You can reassess a few months afterwards, but initially, if the bleeding risk is low and their CHADS2 score is high, CHADS2 VAS score is high, they should be anticoagulated. And then finally, atrial fibrillation ablation does not absolve the need for anticoagulation. Okay? Patients shouldn't be referred for atrial fibrillation ablation just to get off of their anticoagulation. So if I leave you with those four take-home points, I would like to thank you for your time. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Mayo Talks by Mayo Clinic. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please subscribe and share with a colleague. You can find the video of today's featured podcast along with presentations from other Mayo Clinic medical conferences at mayotalks.com. Check us out. That's mailtalks.com. Mailtalks is a copyrighted program from Mail Clinic.